Whenever you hear that music, it's time to settle in, get comfortable. You're on the porch. This is where we get back to basics, examining the Word of God, and especially the example of the Book of Acts Church, to see how they serve the Lord. By digging deeper into Scripture, we find the church the Lord intended and not the one that man created. The porch was born out of the need to restore the priesthood of the believer and regain the world-shaking influence that the early church had. The church age is still in effect. The day of Pentecost is ongoing. The fire still falls. If you have any questions, please visit firefalltalkradio.com. Use the contact button or write us directly at the porch, lowercase one word, at firefalltalkradio.com. If you'd like to support what we do right there on the main page of the website, there are ways to do so. Just pray and give as the Lord leads. We appreciate your support and encouragement to each and every one of you that have been with us for this long ride. And welcome to all of our listeners from the various streaming platforms and all the different places. And in that regard, as I mentioned last week, been having a problem with SoundCloud, have part of that straightened out, but we won't be um, paying for their services anymore, which means each week they'll post a new um, session of the porch, but all the older ones will probably disappear. So remember... You can always hear us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify if you want to subscribe to us, or Spreaker, Blog Talk Radio, and Podbean. If you need prayer or you want to pray for others, write to us, let us know. Remember, we care about you, and if you have people praying for you, that's great. But know this, I sit here And I pray for you. If I know your name, I pray for you by name. If I don't, I just remind the Lord that you're one of the listeners of the porch. He knows who you are. So, Father, we come to you right now because you've given us that ability to boldly approach the throne of grace and mercy, saying, Abba, Father, Papa, God, Daddy. We love you. We thank you. We need you. We come to you as your children thanking you for what you've done for us, loving us when we were unlovable, making a way for us even when we were so lost we didn't think we could find our way home. You you brought us home. You gave us Yeshua, your only begotten Son, so that he could pay our debts, that he could cover it with a blood payment, something we never would have been able to do. He did it on the cross. Our freedom, our salvation was his destruction. But we are so thankful, Lord, that you are alive. You rose from the grave. You sit at the right hand of the Father. And we get to sit with you in fullness and power. And we're so thankful that you love us, that you guide us, that you care about us, that your eyes are on us. And that you sent the Holy Spirit back so that he could walk with us and teach us and remind us of what you've said and empower us. And so, Holy Spirit, I am so thankful for you. I never take for granted what you do on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of the Father. So we ask right now that you would bless this time. We take our thoughts captive 
to the obedience of Messiah. We claim the mind of Messiah, and we cast down every vain imagination that would exalt itself above the knowledge of El Elyon, God Most High, our Abba Father. We pray you'd bless the technology. Let this word go forth. Let it do what you ordain it to do. Touch each and every person. Speak to them. Let them feel your presence. And Holy Spirit, have your way. In Yeshua's name, amen. Lessons are proprietary information, except where noted the information comes from outside sources. Combination of that information, the matter presented is exclusive, cannot be repeated or used without permission. The date of this broadcast serves as the registered date of the following information. So I'm pretty excited to see what the Lord's going to do tonight. I worked on the Bible study yesterday, worked on it all day, had so much material, I had enough for the next couple of weeks. And then got up this morning, had a thought come to mind, and when I do that, I I write it down so I don't forget it. But I had a, th- a thought come to mind, which I turned into a meme, and it's been on my social media. You can find me on Facebook, um, Instagram, at rj.grun, at Firefall Talk Radio, at Firefall Talk Radio, um, on Twitter, SRT, all those places. And when I got done writing it and created the image and did what I did and put it up, and the Lord said, now that's what I want you to teach on tonight. Okay, so I sat down and and did a whole new Bible study. So I don't know who this is for, but whoever this is for, the Lord did this for you. So your Bibles are open by now. If you have your apps, that's great, but I want you to have physical, tangible Bibles in your hand Because as you saw in North Carolina, people are attacking the grid. Somebody shot up one of the grids there, and hundreds of thousands of people were without power, and it may take days or even weeks to fix it. Always have a tangible Bible. Don't count on technology. So basically, what came to mind was that our life in this world and our walk with the Lord is like running a race. The minute we become born again and call him Lord of our lives, the race begins. So go with me to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Yeshua, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If that doesn't get you excited, something's wrong. The race that is set before us, You are either running to something or running away from something, but you're running a race. And the question is, how will you finish that race? 
According to Hebrews 12, 2, the Lord ran his race to the finish line, which was the throne of God. And for our sakes, he won. If I was going to add a sound effect, I'd add a cheering sound effect and applause and the whole bit. But he won. This race, this walk, this thing we do, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for him, and it won't be easy for us. He warned us that it would be hard. He warned it warned us that it would be dangerous. He warned us that they would try to kill us. Because we live in a fallen world, First John 5.19. We know positively that we are of God, and the whole world around us is under the power of the evil one. Well, he's referring, John, to Hasatan, to Satan. But the truth is, it's under the power of his kingdom and all that serve him in that kingdom, both natural and supernatural, high-ranking entities. It's not just him. But we live in a world that is under the power and the influence of the kingdom of darkness. And when the Lord took back the keys of hell and death, he restored spiritual authority on earth to his church, to his children, But the natural authority does not happen until the second coming and the end. When he sits down on the throne here, and it's all over. Until then, we're in a race. We're in a race for our lives, and the odds are stacked against us. And we're not expected by anyone else to win. Anyone but the Lord, that is. And sometimes the opposition and the jostling of other runners can get so great we want to run away and get out of the race. Don't feel bad if you do, but understand something. You're, you're also running with people. If you've ever seen the stories of these marathons where somebody gets towards the finish line and they just collapse and their legs have muscles have frozen, other runners who don't care about their times or winning reach up underneath them and help them finish the race. That's what we do for one another. But if you feel like running away, don't feel bad. One of the greatest prophets of all time did it. First Kings chapter 18 tells us one of the greatest stories in the Bible, I believe, about the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel confronting the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Ashtaroth, Jezebel, any one of the female entities that that represents. And they served King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And there on Mount Carmel, they built the altars. They did the whole thing. And maybe we'll we'll circle back to that. It's one of my favorite stories. And he calls down fire, and it consumes the sacrifice and the wood and the water and the stones. And he embarrasses the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table and inspired the children of Israel. Elijah did. He inspired them to kill those 850 servants of darkness. And by the way, Satan and your minions, if you're listening, not the little yellow cute minions, I mean the demonic minions, if you're, if you're listening, be thankful we don't still get to do that. Great story. Very visual. We hear it a lot, but you know what we don't hear a lot about? Is that when Jezebel found out what Elijah had done, she threatened his life and Elijah ran away. 
First Kings 19, verses 1 through 3, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And her gods were Dagon and Baal, Berith, and some of the others, and she was swearing by them. And Verse 3, and when he saw, he being Elijah, saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Elijah was afraid. He reacted in fear. He feared what Jezebel could do to him. All of the power, all of the faith, everything that triggered the event on Mount Carmel was sucked out of him, sapped. And if you've never been in the presence of an entity that powerful, you don't understand. And he ran. He ran from Jezebel. He ran from everything, ran from his calling. He wanted to die. And you know what? Instead of getting the, the, the victory parade and maybe even inspiring repentance in Ahab's royal house, his reward was a death threat. You and I are under a death threat every day. You may not know it. You may not believe it. You may think it's for people like me or SRT or some of the other people out there that confront the enemy or stand against the powers of darkness. No, we're all under that threat. And I've said it before, someday I will seek out Elijah when I get into paradise and sit down with him and say, okay, brother to brother, man to man, warrior to warrior, why'd you run? You should have been filled with confidence. You had just called down fire. You had just done tremendous thing in, in front of thousands of people. And instead you ran in fear. And had to be encouraged out of your depression by an angel, by Almighty God, back into ministry. Because had Elijah not returned, he would have not have been able to give a double portion of his anointing to Elisha who then anointed Jehu to destroy Jezebel and cleanse the kingdom of Israel. Running away has a ripple effect of consequences. But be encouraged. Even if you want to run or have the desire to run, and even if you do, the Lord will seek you out and guide you back to where you were supposed to be in the first place. What if you ran towards the calling instead of, instead of away from it? What then? Well, if you ran toward the upward calling, you'd understand how young David felt in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Let's go there. 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered together at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sukkot and Azekah in the valley there of Eli and Saul. That's not what it says, but I just 
going to mangle those two words because I didn't look them up. Sorry. (laughs) And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. Well, at least they did that much. The Philistines stood on a mount on one side and Israel on a mount on the other side with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So he was about nine or ten feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. So let's see, 9 to 10 feet tall, probably four to 600 pounds. Helmet of brass, about 10 pounds. Coat of mail, 194, 195 pounds. Two shin protectors of brass for his legs, probably 10 pounds each, that's 20 pounds. Breastplate is estimated according to what we're told to be 20 pounds. The spearhead, 23 pounds. Sword, 10 pounds. Shield, 30 pounds. Carried by an extra man. So essentially, a Goliath is carrying over 300 pounds of armor and weaponry. Big dude. And then he stood, being Goliath, cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I don't know about you, but those are fighting words, literally. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Israel's got a problem. They've got an enemy arrogantly encroaching on their territory, and they're afraid. So here they are in the Valley of Elah, 15 miles southwest of Bethlehem. It's an east-west valley leading from the hill country of Judah towards the lowland of the Philistines. Now the valley would have been suitable for the Philistine chariots had it not been for a steep ravine and extended up the middle of the valley. The war chariots of the Philistines had iron fittings and were the most advanced weapon of the day. And that ravine probably prevented a full-scale assault by the Philistines, causing the long delay before engaging in battle. Interestingly enough, Elah is the Hebrew term for terebinth tree, which still grow in the valley, and the tree has religious connotations. It's a place where pagan gods were worshipped, and at times Israel took up that religion. Hosea 4.13 They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under the oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. Ezekiel 6.13 
I don't know, wait a second here. I, I don't get this. Why, why is Israel afraid? Why are they not angry? Why are those trees not taking them off? Because they're taking me off talking about it. Ezekiel six thirteen. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When their slain are among their idols all around your altars on every high hill and all the mountaintops under every green tree and every thick oak, which is the turbant, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their gods. This oak, this turbant, is called the diviner's oak, used for mystical purposes. It's a soothsayer's tree. It's for fortune tellers. Mentioned in Genesis 12, when Abraham passes through the land of Shechem, as far as the turbant tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land, and we talked about who the Canaanites are and who they worship. They worship Dagon. They worship Baal Barith, who has a temple in Shechem. SRT's buddy there, Baal Barith. I say that facetiously. This is the battlefield chosen by the enemy. They've chosen a place where their gods and their people and all the trees and all everything's in their favor, or so they think. They've chosen the place of their failure and their destruction. But they don't know that yet. Now we have David, 12 to 14 years old, probably 5'2", five, 5'4", five, at the most, maybe 5'5". Five, five. The average Jewish man of the day was 5'8", so he's, he's, he's a little guy, and he's young. He's a young sheep, sheep herder for his father, Jesse. So he gets the news. He's to bring food supplies to them. Now his brothers, his older brothers, Eliab the firstborn, Abnadab, and then the secondborn, and then Shema the third, they're there with King Saul and the other Israelites in the Valley of Elah. They're there to fight, but they're hiding like everybody else. Israel on one mount, Philistine army on the other, a valley in the middle. You ever been in a valley in your life where you should be fighting. You should be down there rocking and rolling with their Goliath, and you just don't have it in you. You've, you've allowed the fear to come. You've looked at the size of the enemy. You've, you've remembered your failures, and here's Goliath. He's strutting big and tall and powerful, scary-looking, and he's calling for a champion to fight him. I believe Goliath was a Nephilim. He was of the Anakim. We know them from Canaan, Joshua 11. That the Anakim remained only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod. So if he's from Gath, he's from that line. If he's that tall, he's a giant. Probably six fingers, six toes, fearsome features, maybe a protruding forehead. He's not a good looking guy. Not somebody you want to invite home to have dinner and meet your daughter. There he is. All nine or ten feet of him. And he wants a fight. His spear alone is probably taller, is as tall as David. That weaver's beam is five feet long. And where's King Saul? King Saul is heading shoulders taller than any man of the day, which estimates him at about 6'11", maybe even 7 feet tall. And he's hiding in his tent. This is 
Saul, who was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16, because the people wanted a king like the other nations. God wasn't good enough for them. So he gives them Saul. And, of course, Saul is a failure, chosen by the people, not by God. Remember, there's a difference between the perfect will of God, which is Isaac, and the permissive will of God, which is Ishmael. Saul was an Ishmael for Israel. But God replaces Saul with David, the son of Jesse. And if you remember 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel goes there, to, to bless Jesse is because the Lord says to him, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. Now fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So Samuel, well, wait a second. If I do that and Saul hears about it, he will kill me. So the Lord tells him, take a heifer with you and say I guess to Jesse, I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you which of his sons to anoint for me. The Lord will always make a way, even if it looks bad, even if it looks like, hey, I'm going to get caught, and the enemy's going to know what I'm doing. The Lord will cover for you. He'll put you under the shadow of his wings. He'll tell you how to make it happen. So Samuel does what the Lord tells him to. He goes to Bethlehem. He, he, the elders of the town see him coming. They want to know what's wrong. They're afraid. Do you come in peace? Samuel says, yeah, I'm here to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves. Come meet me with the sacrifice. And then he does the purification right for Jesse and his sons, and he invites them to the sacrifice. They arrive. Samuel takes one look at the oldest, Eliab. Surely this is the Lord's anointed, but the Lord speaks to them and says, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then the second board, Abnadab, steps forward and walks in front of Samuel, but Samuel says, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. Jesse summons Shemaiah. Samuel says, neither is this the one. And, and just goes through all his sons, all of Jesse's sons. And then Samuel looks at Jesse and says, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Are these all the sons you have? And Jesse goes, well, they're still the youngest, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Jesse didn't even think enough of David to invite him to the event. That's how little he thought of David. So Samuel says, send for him at once, and we will not sit down and eat until he arrives. So Jesse sends for him. Now David was dark and handsome and with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So David stood there amongst his brothers. The brothers that gave him the job nobody else wanted, watching the flock at night while they slept in their beds. And Samuel takes the flask of oil, and he anoints David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And Samuel returned to Ramah. The same anointing oil that elevated Saul in status and consecration for service 
David was anointed to replace him out of the same horn, out of the same flask. And in Hebrew, it came upon him. It rushed upon him like a rushing mighty wind. And David, five foot two, five foot four, David, dark skin, ruddy. They believe he had red hair, beautiful eyes. He's empowered by God's Ruach HaKadosh for the work of ruling God's people just as Saul had been. Just that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Saul in Samuel 10, and then he began prophesying with the prophets, and he was given a new heart. Selfishness and rebellion cost him the anointing. It left him because of disobedience, because at the exact moment that David is anointed, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Samuel leaves and goes to Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him, and troubled him from that point on. The thing to understand is in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord came upon a person or a group when they were called to do a task or ordained for an office. It was temporary, just like came upon the judges, Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Judges 3, 6, and 11. Both Samuel and David received the Spirit of the Lord being anointed to be king. Now also remember this. Saul, I'm not Samuel, Saul, I'm sorry. Saul is anointed and he immediately becomes king of Israel. David's anointed and he has to run for his life. He has to fight. He eventually becomes king of Israel. Now, most people, especially today, believe, oh, if you got the anointing, it's immediate. You're going to get right to it. Maybe not. But in the Old Testament, the spirit departs when the task is completed or that person is removed from the office that he's been given. Now, the one thing to remember here, if you're struggling, if you're in the delay phase of your anointing, whatever's going on, just remember this. You're not all that. God's plans are never tied to one person. If he or she should prove to be unfaithful, he'll pick someone else. He always has a backup. He's given us free will. And in our free will, we may short circuit the calling of God in our life. So let's get back to the battle. David arrives with food for his brothers sent by his father to find out what's going on. Goliath is mocking and belittling the men of Israel for 40 days, which tells me that Goliath was a windbag and a blowhard if he could do that for 40 days. But let's get a proper perspective of what David's facing. Now remember, because of his faith in the living God, he believed he could kill the giant Goliath. However, man, especially his own brothers, had a different opinion. His brothers got angry at him, told him to go home. King Saul says he's too young to fight this battle-tested giant. Pick it up, 1 Samuel 17, 31. Because David's saying, I'll fight this man. I'll fight him. So Saul calls him in. He sends for him. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, because of Goliath. 
your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Now, I can't fault them. Here's this little kid. This isn't an adult. This, otherwise, he'd have been in the army in there with them already. This is a kid. This is a, a, a shepherd boy. And David said to Saul, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it, struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I caught it by its beard, struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and the, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You had to know there was an anointing on David at that moment. Those words had to come out powerfully. The air in that tent changed. David says to Saul, go and the Lord be with you. But then he tries to arm him with his armor. So David clothed, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a bronze helmet on his head. He clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to the armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off, took his staff in his hand, chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in the shepherd's bag, a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. The Philistine came, began drawing near to David, the man who bore the shield went with him. Now, Goliath thinks they finally picked the champion, and we're going to get it on. I'm finally going to get a fight. I'm going to kill these people, and we're going to get this over with. And he looks about, and he sees David. And he disdained him because he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Dagon, Baal, all of the, and the Philistines said to David, come to me and I will give you a flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath's a champion. He expects to be met by an Israel, Israelite warrior similar to the rank, their champion. Because in ancient times, rival forces they would sometimes agree to let selected individuals from each side decide a conflict. This reduced casualties and other costs. It would be great if we could go back to that today. I know some people in the Senate and the House, maybe even the White House, they'd say, hey, why don't you go fight this one? But David wasn't moved by man's opinion or man's facts. He was moved by his faith. Don't run. Don't be afraid by what you see. Don't let that fear hit you. You walk by faith and not by sight. So when he's finally given permission to fight Goliath, he does not hesitate. 
Pick it up in verse 45. So David says to the Philistine, he says to Goliath, and I'm sure right about this time, the, the, the anointing has hit him so hard, he's got little goosebumps on his dark, ruddy skin. His blue eyes are lit aflame. He says, you come to me with, with sword, with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands." Yes, the battle is the Lord. David knew that, but he knew he was going to have to fight. Greater was he that was in him than he that was standing against him. And David said, the Lord of hosts, he was referring to the armies of heaven, the armies that protected Israel, of whom God was the commander-in-chief. And he says, I'm doing this in the name of the Lord, the covenant relationship that the, our God, Almighty God, the one true God has with Israel. See, David was depending upon the power of God as the warrior and defender of his people. Exodus fifteen three, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Remember that. Adonai is a warrior. Adonai is his name. I don't care who the enemy is. I don't care who shows up for the battle. Baal, Bereth, Dagon, Leviathan, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The Lord is a man of war, and he has given me fingers to fight the battle. Just like David, little David. And despite the apparent military advantage in front of him, David knows who's on his side, that Israel has a supreme advantage because of the one true God. Verse 48, so it was. Philistine figures, well, might as well get some exercise. He arose and came and drew near to meet David, and David hurried and ran toward the enemy to meet the Philistine. Now, while he's running, David puts his hand in his back, took a stone, he puts it in the sling, and how the sling worked, it's a pouch with two strips of leather, and he swings it while he's on a run, and he lets go of one of those leather straps, and the rock goes flying towards Goliath. And it strikes the Philistine in his forehead, just under the helmet, in the only area between the bridge of the nose and the skull. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. I bet they were cheering on the Philistine side, and that cheering stopped. Like somebody pulled the plug on the power. And there was a hush over the valley of Elah. 
both sides are shocked by what they've just seen. Israel's probably thinking this kid's going to get killed. David's brothers are thinking, well, we're going to have to tell dad. And now Goliath is face down in the dirt. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, cut off his head with it. Verse 51 indicates Goliath is not dead yet. He's knocked unconscious. He's face down. He's not dead till the head is taken off. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David took off his head, held it up for everyone to see. And at that point, the Philistines knew that their champion was dead. Terror fills the Philistine soldiers. And this was an indignity to a fallen foe and a decisive sign. He's dead. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted, probably for the first time, and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shamarim, Shamarim even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their tents. And David took the head of Goliath, brought it to Jerusalem, and put his armor in his tent. I don't know about you, but that gets me kind of excited. And I would really love to see somebody do this right in a movie, not some of the bad depictions I've seen. But David was running towards the calling. He ran towards the challenge in total faith and expectancy that God would be with him. It didn't matter how big Goliath was. It didn't matter how strong he was. His God and his faith in his God was stronger. And his confidence was such that he had five smooth stones, one for Goliath and his four brothers. And he loaded that sling on the run. He ran with confidence, and his faith was rewarded. He trusted in the Lord and what the Lord had already done through him, with the lion and the bear and the saving of the sheep and the beginning of the process of David becoming who he was. Everything you've been through, every experience, Every failure, everything, excuse me, that has happened during your walk, during your time with the Lord, is preparing you for the moment. David didn't show up to become a national hero. He was sent by his father to check on the welfare of the brothers and use the excuse of food to get into the camp. But once David arrived... Something stirred inside of him that probably the spirit that was upon him through Samuel's anointing, and he took the responsibility no one else would accept. David, young David, nobody expected him to be any good, didn't even want him. Been there, done that, I know how that feels. Just an ordinary day. 
that ended in an extraordinary manner and changed David's life forever and gave us an example to follow. So don't get nervous. Don't fret. Don't sweat. The Lord isn't calling you to do anything extraordinary today. Just stay faithful in the ordinary tasks that he's called you to do, whatever that might be. Don't get distracted. Don't listen to the people up on the hilltop and the mountains. Don't be dismayed by the size of the enemy. He will make your simple faithfulness great in his time. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, your adversary. The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Messiah Yeshua, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. David is a great example of someone running to his calling. But you know what? Beside Elijah, we've had other examples too. Jonah ran away from his calling. He wanted Nineveh to die. He wanted them to be punished. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to be set free. But God pursued him, cornered him, and then sent him back in the right direction to save Nineveh. He will finish the good work he began. Peter, Peter ran from his failure. The same Peter that wrote that, he ran from his failure to publicly proclaim his relationship to the Lord after the Lord was captured. He denied him in such a way that he got vehement. He actually cursed and used profanity, fulfilling the prophecy of the Lord about the rooster crowing and Peter denying him. And what does the Lord do? He seeks him out after the resurrection. Turn Peter around. Peter went on to fulfill his calling. We see that on the day of Pentecost. You're either running to or you're running away. But no matter which way you're going, if the Lord has a plan for you, he will fulfill it. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They can never be withdrawn. Romans eleven twenty nine. Your heavenly Father, your Lord, will do what he sets out to do with you. It may take a little while. You may have to go to the school of the Spirit. You may have to get a little bit of training. There may be a fullness of time factor within the prophetic timeline, but he'll do it because he's faithful to finish the good work he began in you and with you. You're sitting there right now. You're saying, this is great, Richard. I have no calling. I have no purpose. There's nothing I can do. He's done nothing with me in years. Stop, stop, stop. If you've ever felt it, if you've ever seen it, if he's ever done it with you, he will do it again. It's not over. The battle is still going on. 
And look at the world today. The enemy has chosen the battlefield, and they think they're in control. They've chosen a place where their gods are worshipped, and they kill babies, and they worship Baal, and they do all the perverse, disgusting things they do. But I stand there, and I know whose God is God. And I know that he will finish the good work he's begun in us. He will finish what he starts by seeing it through with you to the end. And know this, even if you try to run away, he will pursue you and he'll get you back in the race headed towards the finish line because he's faithful even when we aren't. No pressure, but I got to tell you something. He's depending upon you, depending upon me. When I trip and I fall, or I, even sitting here tonight talking to him before came on the air, talking to him. Sometimes you feel like a failure. Sometimes you feel like you missed it. And I realized I was living this Bible study. And then I remembered, I remembered all the words, all the prophecies, all the experiences, all the victories, all the things that we've done, whether with SRT or personally or whatever, they suddenly all came to mind. And I remembered he's depending upon me to be faithful. He's depending upon me to remember who he is. He's depending upon me to remember the examples of David. The kingdom of God is depending upon you to stay faithful, to follow through, to finish the race. This world, this unsaved world, your loved ones, your friends, those people that you want to see in the kingdom, they're depending upon you. They just don't know it. And even if you told them they wouldn't see it, they'd be like David's brothers. They'd be like the other people up there. Who are you kidding? What are you going to do? Go home, little boy. You just want to build up your ego. That's what his brother said to him. David didn't listen. He knew he was there for a reason. So the message, I believe that what the Lord wants somebody to hear, maybe multiple somebodies, is this. Run. Run your race. Run towards that calling. If you've been running away, turn around. That's what repentance is. It's a 180. Turn around, repent. Figure out where the enemy got you, where the fear came in, like like Elijah after Mount Carmel, when the enemy had to come and feed him and kick him in the soles of his feet and say, get up, go on. If that's what you need, I pray the Lord send you an angel tonight, kick you in the soles of your feet, wake you up, get you going, get back on track. All the things that happened, forget it. All the things you messed up, forget it. Remember who you are in Yeshua. Remember what the Lord has said to you, confirmed to you, what he needs from you. 
and have the faith to know that he is in it with you. You're not alone. You're not alone. He's in it with you. We're in it with you. I know my fellow teammates with SRT, they know that I'm in it with them. Oh, I may be the the lead guy, and I may take the focus and the brunt of the battle, but that I, we're a team, and we're in this together. All of us, brothers and sisters, finish the race. Finish what he started and know that you win. Let's go back to where we started. Hebrews 12. Therefore, we, all of us also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Yeshua, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Will you finish that race? Will you do it? Lord, I come to you now on behalf of your sons and your daughters and myself. We ask for some encouragement. Some of us have been running this race for a while. Maybe we started out too fast. And we forgot it's a marathon, not a sprint. We're tired, we're weary, we're beat up, fallen a couple of times, shinned our, skinned our knees and our shins. But we get up, we're on our feet. We need a burst of the Holy Spirit. We need healing in our mortal body. We need the provision to keep going. We need the encouragement. We need you to run this race with us. For your Holy Spirit, your paracletos, to be alongside of us. I'm going to stop right now while I'm praying. I don't do this a lot, but I see a woman. I see a, she's female. I can't tell you how old she is. But I see somebody who wants to quit. They're tired. They're hurting. They're having a hard time remembering when God used them. Having a hard time remembering when they were useful. They're stumbling forward. They're not running forward. I pray for you right now in the Yeshua to be filled, filled, filled with the Spirit into your inner person, overflowing with the power and the presence and the fire and the love and the and the dunamis of God to keep going, to finish your race. I pray that for each and every one of you. Lord, right now, send it. Pour it out from heaven. Just from the labor in the, in the throne room, just pour it out. Pour it out upon your children. We have a race to win. We got we to run. We got to run. We got to finish it. Hasatan thinks he's won. He's taken over the world. He's taken over politics. He's taken over media. He's arrogant. He's strutting in the valley like Goliath did. He's asking for a champion. 
You know me, Lord. Send me. Send us. Touch us right now, Holy Spirit. We're going to finish it, folks. We're going to finish the race in Yeshua's name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, give you shalom. I'm Richard Grund. This has been The Porch on Firefall Talk Radio.